For the week of Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, Washington State Representative Noelle Frame. She represents the 36th District in Position 1, and she joins us to talk about the launch of her re-election campaign and to give us a solid overview of what got accomplished in this year's 60-day legislative session. Bills that we had passed for years uh, in the legislature uh, with bipartisan support that had died in the Senate under Republican control, once we flipped the majority to the Democrats in the Senate, we were able to send over bills that had been well worked in the House, were bipartisan, and then were able to get through the Senate and to the governor. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Noelle Frame is a state representative in position one from the 36th Legislative District, which includes most of Northwest Seattle, and she is currently running for re-election this November. Noelle Frame, welcome. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about your background, uh, but first let's start by talking about this last legislative session because it's pretty exciting. This was the first session since the Democrats took back the majority in both chambers. Uh, They managed to get a lot accomplished. There is certainly more to be done, and we'll definitely talk about that. But just give me your thoughts generally on what got accomplished during this last session. Great. Well, thanks for the question. Uh, It was an exciting in very intense 60 days. It was a short session and we finished on time. I think maybe only the second time in the last decade the legislature finished on time. Oh, is that right? That, wow. that, so that in and of itself is an accomplishment. Um, we passed more than 300 bills. And what's sort of interesting is 98% of them were bipartisan bills. And I'll tell you how on this earth that is possible. Um, You know, we've been a divided uh, legislature for many years. We only have a one-vote majority uh, in the House, uh, one-vote majority in the Senate now. Most people don't know that. They think we're a blue state, um, and frankly, state government is fairly invisible to a lot of folks. Mm. Um, So they don't know we're so deeply divided. And I think as a consequence of being sort of divided over the last many years, we've really been forced to work out a lot of our differences with our Republican colleagues. And so when we came into this session, we actually had passed a ton of legislation in the House last year. Uh, And because it was the part two of a biennium, we were able just to basically put those bills right back up. Maybe like one thing we had to do was vote them off the House floor one more time. But we didn't have to start all over from the beginning of the process because it was the second half of the biennium. So you would push the boulder most of the way up the hill, then, is what you're saying? Precisely. So we like really had a lot of stuff teed up going into a 60-day session Bills that we had passed for years uh, in the legislature uh, with bipartisan support that had died in the Senate under Republican control, once we flipped the majority to the Democrats in the Senate, we were able to send over bills that had been well worked in the House, were bipartisan, and then were able to get through the Senate and to the governor. So we had a lot to celebrate. Well, so you say 98 percent of legislation was passed on a bipartisan basis. Uh, were those any of the big ticket items that we saw uh, headlines about? What sort of legislation passed on a bipartisan basis? You know, that's interesting. Um, you know, uh, certainly some of the biggest bills uh, that passed uh, were bipartisan. They weren't necessarily the ones I'm referring to, but I'll give you an example of a really strong bipartisan bill, yep. which was net neutrality. We passed a first-in-the-nation net neutrality bill. Uh, I think it is a shared value that, you know, Internet is, you know, one of the biggest tools to democracy uh, in our current age. And with the FEC ruling, rolling back net neutrality rules at the federal level, uh, we really sprung into action at the local level to respond to that. Um, 
and that definitely did have bipartisan support. I think an example of something that had passed several years in a row, frankly, doesn't get as much of attention as other things, but um, criminal justice reform, specifically legal financial obligations, uh, we basically uh, have had a de facto debtor's prison in the state of Washington. Um, Sadly, this is in the context of a really broken tax structure, which I hope we'll talk about today. We definitely shall, yeah. Very good. Um, and so our courts um, have really been, you know, nickel and diming, um, frankly, folks in the criminal justice system trying to make up some of those costs. Uh, and we had, you know, folks coming into prison that not only had legal financial obligations, but they had been accumulating uh, at an interest rate of like 12% while people were sitting in prison. And folks wow. came out of prison, had tens of thousands of dollars of debt. And, of course, very little opportunity to get a job, get housing. And what we were doing is sort of sending people back into the revolving door of the criminal justice system because they were recommitting crimes to survive. Exactly. You're just stacking the deck against somebody uh, actually being able to rejoin society. Yep. So that is a bill that passed probably at least five times out of the House and died in the Senate. Actually, um, by the end of the process, started with a Democratic sponsor. The final bill was a Republican sponsor. Um, so that's a great example of what I'm talking about with us having had many years to work out our differences with our Republican colleagues in the House. The Senate was really the problem. Yeah. Well, so. let's talk about some of the things that you yourself spearheaded. I know that you're a big advocate for juvenile justice reform um, and that you uh, headed a bill there. Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, Washington state, like a lot of states across the country, uh, really went the wrong direction on juvenile justice uh, in the 1990s, sort of in the tough on crime era. Um, if people recall back to the 2016 campaign, a lot of talk about how we used to label kids super predators, um, particularly kids of color. And we now have years of data to inform that those laws that were implemented in the 90s are not working, not even remotely working. Uh, and so we looked at uh, uh, five crimes in particular that were uh, what are called auto decline, that if a kid was 16 or 17, they committed these crimes, they were automatically declined from the juvenile system and tried instead as adults, uh, were convicted as adults, which means they have a lifelong adult criminal record uh, and would often serve at least part of their sentence in prison despite being children. Um, we went, we worked this, this is a law, uh, they've been trying to undo this law for about 16 years. Uh, and I, uh, I, along with my colleague, uh, Senator Patty Cooter, and many others, uh, Representative Goodman, Kagi, Senator Darneal, uh, really worked on this uh, bill to um, figure out you know, what it was going to take to get law enforcement to come along with us and understand why this wasn't working. And bottom line, the outcome was right now uh, kids can stay in juvenile jurisdiction until they're 21 years old. This is they're convicted before they're 18. They can stay in until they're 21. We've actually extended this to 25, so those kids that are committed of serious crimes, that basically law enforcement will let them stay in the juvenile system rather than putting them over into the adult system. We know that kids that stay in an age-appropriate rehabilitative setting, they actually come out uh, back into society, and they do not recommit crimes at the same rate as they would have had they been in the adult system. Mom. And so this is good for public safety. It's good for criminal justice reform. And frankly, it's really good uh, at addressing the root causes of racial disproportionality in our criminal justice system. Uh, sadly, of all the kids that were convicted as adults in Washington state, 70 percent, 70 percent are kids of color. And we know that most of the people in our prison system today 
started early, whether they're convicted as juveniles or young adults, that is the time that you make a lot of dumb mistakes. And we know that now from brain development, that the brain is still developing until right. age 25. So really great stuff. We were able to turn that back, and then we think we'll address root causes of the criminal justice system being disproportionate. Well, this is something that absolutely can bear fruit long term, and so uh, it, it's very forward-thinking legislation. And I, I do want to talk about some of the other things that you uh, worked on this year, but I do want to give people a little bit of a sense of your background uh, before we move on. So you grew up here in the state. You're a native. Uh, you have a master's mm-hmm. from George Washington University in education policy and political management. You uh, were started as a PhD. PCO in 2006, uh, you worked for Senator Maria Cantwell. You were a delegate to the DNC in 2016. You were the director of what is now known as Amplify, which trains people to run for office. And then you've been a state representative since 2016. So politics is in your blood at this point. You've been in the political world for a long time. And this is just a this is a big question, but I'll just ask you, what are, what is it basically that drives your desire or has driven your desire to work in public service? Absolutely. Well, thanks for the question. First and foremost, I must say um, I am definitely somebody who was born in the state of Washington, um, but I want to make sure I'm clear. I am not Native because Native American in the sense of our you know, brothers and sisters who have been on the land a lot longer than I have, uh, a lot longer than my ancestors have. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, out of respect, I wanted to clarify there. Got it. Okay, um, understood. Yeah. So I grew up in Battleground, which is in southwest Washington. Um, and a very rural, conservative part of the state, and did go to college on the other side of the country. Uh, basically, you know, got as far away as possible as a kid that grew in a rural area. I think I was meant to be a city kid. Mm. And um, really uh, was very interested uh, on education funding in particular. Um, uh, when, you know, I won't get too deep into it unless you want me to, but, you know, went to a school that was severely underfunded and really uh, – felt the impacts of that as a student. And so when I went to school... Well, actually, I'm going to stop you because I do want to delve into that. You've mentioned that on your website, and you've said that part of the reason why you're an advocate for education funding is that the negative effects hit you personally, as you say. In in what ways did they affect you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, as we all know from the McCleary lawsuit that we hope we are now wrapping up, um, you know, the state has not been meeting its paramount duty, as it says in the Constitution. Right. Its number one priority is to, you know, fully fund basic education in the state of Washington. Um, this problem didn't start with the McCleary Law. The Seattle School District actually sued the state of Washington in the 70s. Uh, if you fast forward to the 90s, when I was in high school, the state was not in compliance. So this is a longstanding problem. And, you know, how it how it impacted me personally is because the state was not meeting the basics, local excess property levies, which were supposed to be used for enrichment, uh, were being used to meet the basic needs of school districts all across the state. And I was in a school district that just couldn't pass a levy. Uh, when I was in high school in the 90s, uh, it was a supermajority requirement, uh, 60%. Uh, we were able to overturn that, I believe, in 2008, uh, down to a simple majority uh, but we ran and lost three levies in the four years I was in high school. And so as a freshman, we saw all the freshman sports get cut. Oh, wow. uh, and, yeah. And as I progressed in school, you know, it's like the drama department was eliminated. Our librarian was laid off. Our teachers were laid off. And so we really, I mean, by the time I was a senior, my graduation speaker at my high school graduation, his speech was about how our community didn't care about us. Oh, wow. Yeah. So 
when I say that this is an issue for me, I mean, it was really a formative experience for me. And so believe me, being in the legislature 20 years later as we're wrapping up the McCleary lawsuit and to be able to cast that vote in favor of that last nearly billion dollars we put in is very gratifying. Well, let me give people uh, a little bit of context when you say McCleary. Yeah. I just want to let people know that we're talking about a uh, decision by the state Supreme Court uh, that was based on a lawsuit that said that the schools were underfunded and the state Supreme Court ordered the legislature to fund state schools to the tune of about a billion dollars. And then just this year, the legislature came into compliance. Um, and so then that leads me to to ask you, the states have been funded at this point for uh, basics, uh, and that's what a billion dollars covers. What in your mind needs to be done above and beyond that for our state schools? Sure. Well, I I will say um, one of the biggest misses in my mind, and, and I frankly was surprised that the Supreme Court did not ding us on this in evaluating us last year, uh, was special education funding. And so, you know, the state is not sufficiently funding special education. Again, school districts have been making that up with local levies. And as we are increasing state funding, we are, within a year, we are going to be decreasing uh, the levy lids locally so that schools, school districts are not going to be allowed to spend those local levy dollars on special education anymore uh, because they're, quote, unquote, basic education. So we're putting our school districts... (laughs) in this position of either violating state law or violating federal law by not supporting and serving our students with disabilities. Um, That's a real conundrum. And we, this year, were able to increase the multiplier that we use in the funding formula um, for special education. So that was a step in the right direction, but it's still not sufficient. So that's a huge uh, gap. Um, And then I would say further, and again, we as the House Democrats sought to address some of this this year, Uh, ultimately did not, we weren't able to get this in the final budget. But, you know, basic education was redefined back in 2009. And while it looked at sort of all the many factors um, at schools, and sometimes it would say, well, this position is important, but only point whatever, 0.5 position per school uh, is part of the basic education funding formula. And I think the one of the, the two positions where that really plays out that I think is very concerning for a lot of us are school counselors and school nurses. Um, so we have, you know, based on the funding formula, we have many schools that don't have, I mean, most of our schools don't have full-time nurses anymore. Uh, and you think about the proliferation of kids with allergies, kids with mental health uh, issues, kids with dealing with trauma at home. And we don't have counselors, uh, uh, nurses at school with on the medical side and then school counselors. And I think we mix up guidance counselors versus actual mental health counselors. We have kids dealing with a lot of trauma at home, and I, you know, can speak to the kind of broader child welfare stuff I work on, too, but we don't have these resources at our schools, and so I would like to see us expand those support services that really help children thrive, particularly kids coming from tough situations at home, um, to be able to do well in school. Um, last thing I'll say is I'm a firm believer in career and technical education, Uh, I think that we have phased out a lot of uh, things to kind of focus on the core because of the school funding challenges, and we have taken out a lot of career and technical ed. We've taken out a lot of access to to arts and music and drama, and these are the things that really help a lot of kids do well with what we would consider sort of the basics around reading and English and math and science. Uh, And CTE in particular, we have a whole generation of uh, workers about to retire 
and we do not have people ready to replace them in the trades, in the construction trades, thinking of plumbers, electricians. Maritime is a big industry in my district, mm. uh, and we are not filling those jobs because we haven't we haven't done the workforce development to be ready for it. And at the same time, we have a lot of people that are really struggling economically. Uh, so it seems like a real mismatch, and I think investing in career and technical ed in our K-12 schools would be a step in the right direction of correcting that problem. Right. Well, you know, one of the ways to make up the funding shortfall there has been uh, the imposition of a property tax. And this this was seen as pretty controversial. Uh, some people actually said that it ultimately is a regressive tax. You've said that one of the reasons that you're running is to address the state's regressive tax structure. Uh, I should mention that you are the vice chair of the House Finance Committee, so I know this is something you work with very closely. Um, talk about the problems with our tax structure here in the state and and ways that you feel we can make it more progressive. Sure. So I'll give a little bit of context on the broader tax structure and then bring it back to the funding uh, education piece and the property tax specifically. So uh, we have what has been deemed the most regressive tax structure in the nation. And what we mean by the most regressive is that we disproportionately tax low-income and middle-class people, and frankly, small business, if you put them on a scale with small business and corporations. Um, So we have the poorest among us paying, you know, as a share of their income, seven times more in taxes than the wealthiest 1%. We we have corporations who can afford to hire a lobbyist that come down to Olympia and get themselves uh, exempted from paying business and other taxes or a preferential rate. And then who's left holding the bag? Small businesses. So, you know, when we look at what the ideal tax structure is, and this isn't just a progressive saying it, the progressive that I am. I've sat in rooms with conservative uh, economists, and they will say the same thing. The ideal tax structure is the broadest base of taxpayers, the lowest tax rates with the fewest uh, exemptions from that code. And we literally have the opposite code. We have more than 700 uh, preferential rates or exemptions to our tax code today. Uh, Barely a decade ago, we only had 200 exemptions, and we're now at 700. So they've really proliferated uh, in recent years. Well, so so help us understand what's happening here politically. I mean, what what is standing in the way of reform here? Is it just that corporations can hire lobbyists for exemptions, as you say? What what really are the roadblocks we're, we're looking at? Sure. Um, So there's a couple things. I mean, um, tax breaks, I think a lot of people have given up on trying to fix the broader code. And so to serve their own individual interests, they've gone to the tax exemption, tax break, preferential rate, whatever you want to say. They've gone that route. So every one of those 700 tax breaks has a constituency. And you know what? What's tough about it is some of them have real merit. There are things that I actually agree with. For instance, you know, we've had proposals around, uh, you know, we already do not pay sales tax on food, and we've had proposals to eliminate sales tax on diapers, on feminine hygiene products, for example. So things I agree with, you know, in isolation, but the cumulative effect of exempting every little pet thing that you care about is that, you know, we forego almost as much revenue as we collect in our tax code. It's ridiculous. And so... You know, we'd like to fix the whole code, but it's become perceived as insurmountable. I think the biggest, you know, one of the biggest challenges for us in our code, and I try to explain this to people, that you have these different sources of revenue and they're all dials. So if you can visualize having a bunch of dials up on a wall, and we have a couple of dials in particular that are turned down to zero. They are off. 
And as a consequence, all the other dials are turned way up. Uh, and of course, the dials that we have turned off are capital gains tax. We have, we're one of only nine states left that doesn't have a capital gains tax. And we also don't have an income tax. We're one of only seven states that doesn't have that. So as a consequence, we have one of the highest sales tax rates in the, in the nation. Uh, we have really now really jacked property tax. And then we have this really obscure and weird business and occupation tax structure uh, that I could talk about for a whole nother show. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it gets you know, weedy. Because, it definitely gets weedy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so I think that collective, you know, when it comes down to it, with capital gains and income tax and our, you know, Republican friends, frankly, it, it is more effective for them to use income tax as a political weapon than it is to use it as a policy solution. And until people are willing to lay down arms, as you might say, and, and abandon it as a political weapon, it becomes very difficult to include it as a policy solution. I support it. I support adding an income tax, for instance, to uh, reduce that sales tax. That would be a great way to correct the code and make it less regressive. And that's something uh, that would have to be done by a constitutional amendment, unless I miss my guess there. Uh, if you wanted to do a progressive income tax, that's correct. A flat income tax is constitutional and could be done today. But it is that... Uh, uh, taxing property uniformly uh, because property income has been determined to be property by our state Supreme Court. Uh, and until that Supreme Court ruling is overturned, we would not be able to do a progressive income tax like they do at the federal uh, federal level. So let's talk about a town hall that you recently hosted. It was a drop-in town hall uh, that you did with your colleagues, uh, State Senator Reuben Carlisle and Representative Gail Tarleton, who is in position two in the 36th district. And I'm just wondering, uh, generally speaking, what kinds of concerns did you hear? What are you hearing from constituents right now? Well, uh, just talking about the tax issue, we're hearing a lot of concerns about property tax increases. Okay. And for all the reasons that I just explained, um, we we ended up, and I should back up and say, um, going back to the McCleary thing, we ended up doing a uh, massive property tax increase to be able to fully fund schools and comply with McCleary. We had a, a much more comprehensive proposal uh, to meet that obligation, and we lost is what it comes down to. We had the capital gains tax, which is basically taxing uh, transactions on high-end assets like stocks and bonds. Um, we had a progressive real estate excise tax, which is what you pay when you're selling your home. And when you say uh, we, who are you referring to specifically? The Democrats. The House Just Democrats specifically the House Democrats. Okay. As we mentioned, it's a one-vote uh, majority. So were there not enough Democrats to support this ultimately then? I think we had 50 votes, but we did not have uh, the votes we needed in the Senate. And so I think the analysis was there is no point on taking the vote in the House uh, if we can't pass it out of the Senate. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with that analysis, but that is the analysis that was made. Um, so, yes, having a broader Democratic majority uh, is very important if we are to actually be able to address uh, our tax code to make it better for middle class families, low income folks and small business. That's a big reason why we need a bigger Democratic majority. So my constituent, because we ended up doing it on property tax, um, mostly, I will say we took some money out of the rainy day fund and we also modernized uh, sales tax collection to include online sales. Um, but uh, the majority of it fell on the backs of middle class property owners. And that's tough. In my district, which is, you know, the northwest corner of Seattle, I have a lot of folks that bought homes many, many years ago and, you know, are benefiting from, you know, increased property values. 
and it's benefiting in the sense that if they were to sell, they'd be very, they'd be in great shape. The problem is I've got a lot of senior citizens that just want to age in place. I've got people on fixed incomes that don't want to move. And the property tax is making it hard for them to stay in their homes. It is certainly, I should say, it is certainly a more progressive tax than sales tax. You know, they do have the option to sell and move. But again, these are people that want to age in place. I'm hearing a lot about that. I, my constituents absolutely support all the things I've, I've mentioned about capital gains, income tax, anything to shift the burden from them to people that can afford to pay. I mean, believe me, I have a lot of people that work at Amazon in my district, a lot of tech workers. I have Amazon. I have Facebook. I have Expedia moving into my district. And these are people that came from other states that paid an income tax, and they just got a heck of a, a raise by moving to the state of Washington. Yeah. And even some of them are saying, why aren't we paying this, especially when I'm having to raise several hundred thousand dollars at my school kid's PTA to be able to pay for the things that aren't being paid for by the state. So it's a conundrum. I hear a lot about taxes. Um, and, uh, and that, I should say, too, that that's a real change. I mean, Seattle is a very generous uh, community. It is voted for every tax it's ever been asked to, by and large. Uh, it's a community that wants to help everybody around it, and I think we've just we started to hit a tipping point because we've leaned too too heavily to property tax. I should say I actually voted against uh, the property tax uh, to fund McCleary uh, last year, which was I mean the irony of that after spending most of my adult life fighting for education funding. Uh, that must was, have been kind of a, a difficult vote to, to cast, I would imagine. Oh, very bitter, very bittersweet. But just knowing that we had other options on the table that we chose not to use, I just I couldn't stomach it. Uh, and that's why we came back this year with proposals. We had another proposal this year to have capital gains to buy down some of that property tax. We were not able to to do that. Well, I'll ask you to prognosticate a little bit then. If the Democrats are able to increase their margins in November, do you see the tax structure uh, adjusting uh, in in some of the ways that you would find favorable? Yeah, I would like to pass uh, the capital gains excise tax, and I will make a point. It is not an income tax, as our Republican colleagues like to say. It's not. It's a tax on a transaction of sales of high-end assets, period, end of story. And, and that does not affect, say, retirement accounts or property or things like that. Right. We exempted retirement accounts. We exempted uh, uh, single-family homes. We actually even exempted sales of um, uh, family-owned businesses because we heard from many folks that sale of the small business for, was really the retirement plan for small business owners. So we took that out, too. Um, so it's a modest approach. Uh, if you're not paying capital gains tax today, you're not going to pay it under the state proposal. And that would allow us, for instance, not only to buy down some of that property tax, um, it would allow us, for instance, to expand the senior veteran and disabled property tax exemption. Um, right now, to qualify for property tax exemptions, it's a flat rate all across the state. Well, of course, that's ridiculous when cost of living is so much higher in King County than it is in, say, Ferry or Ponderay County in Northeast uh, Washington. And so one of our proposals was to actually index that exemption uh, threshold to the median income. Um, we could do that if we had other revenue tools in our belt. Uh, and I think that with a bigger Democratic majority, we can 
uh, really start to tackle the tax code and provide relief to middle class, low income, and, and small businesses. Well, that sounds great. That. Yeah. And yeah. Th- that and a whole lot more, I think, can get done. If if this year's session, uh, 60-day session, was any indication, I think next year's session with a, a greater Democratic majority could really be uh, productive in a lot of ways. It could help a lot of people. Um, before we go, I just want to ask you, um, I know that you're kicking off your reelection campaign event on May 30th, and you're running unopposed. And a lot of people have asked why if you are running uh, unopposed, why you are actively raising money right now. So I'd love to give you the opportunity to address that. Yeah. So thanks for the opportunity. And I and I, I love taking the opportunity to explain to people why we do that. Um, because I think for a lot of people, it feels very inside baseball, uh, very sinister uh, to some. But for me, you know, when I raise money and, and I'm unopposed, I can actually donate that back to what we call the House Democratic Campaign Committee. And that could be basically pool our funds to be able to support our candidates that really are in competitive races. And so for me, if I am so lucky to, for the second cycle in a row, be unopposed, and that is true as of today, um, I want to be able to raise that money to help uh, not only my colleagues like Christine Kilduff and Christina Reeves, who are amazing incumbents running for re-election. Um, we've got incredible candidates that are running as challengers. Um, Aaron Frazier running in the 19th district down in Southwest Washington, uh, works at the Community Technical College Board, uh, somebody I've actually known since my high school days in Southwest Washington. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Deborah Entman, who uh, just announced she's running in the 47th district. Uh, I have been asking Deborah Entman to run for office for about eight years uh, yeah, I know a lot of people been, are very excited uh, about her, her candidacy. Absolutely incredible. Works for Adam Smith, has just deep community roots. And so I, for me, raising money in my name allows me to go out and support people who I know share my values, who I know will help me advance a progressive policy agenda, and they will. These are people that I don't just donate money to them. I go knock on doors. I coach them. I give them feedback as somebody who worked on campaigns and recruited people professionally for many years. This is about building a movement. It's about building a democratic majority of organizers and activists and people that are going to support a progressive agenda. And so I appreciate you highlighting this. I am having a kickoff on May 30th. There's no cost to attend. And so if folks don't know me, I really encourage you just to come meet me and hear what I'm all about and how I want to help build, uh, you know, the movement for a progressive policy agenda in the legislature. Uh, I'd appreciate the support. Well, so tell us uh, where people can find out about this and learn more about your campaign, all that. Absolutely. So I am perhaps the easiest person to find on the Internet. Uh, I don't think there's a single human that has my name besides me. Uh, <laughs> so I know. So it's noelleframe.com, Noel like Christmas, frame like a picture frame. And uh, I'm Noel Frame on Twitter, on Facebook, and my website, again, is noelframe.com. So if they go to the website, click on the events page, you'll see more about the campaign kickoff, and you can find it on my social media channels as well. Terrific. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us to talk about your campaign and also to give us a, a very solid overview of what got accomplished in this last year's session and what we can look forward to next year. So, uh, Noel Frame, thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I should mention, as a quick addendum, this interview was recorded on May 9th, and at that time, Noelle was running unopposed, as she said. Since then, she has drawn an opponent, Republican Sidney Whistle. 
And that'll do it for this week's show. For more information about the show, head over to indivisiblepodcast.org and you can subscribe while you're there to get the show delivered to your email inbox. And speaking of email, the email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And you can catch me being just so clever on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. My thanks again to Noel Frame. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.